13th century, the golden age of Baghdad came to an abrupt and violent end. The Mongol hordes swept in from the plains of Central Asia and destroyed the city, massacring thousands of people and throwing the contents of its great libraries into the rivers. The once great capital of the Muslim Empire was never to recover, and devastation would be spread amongst the remaining Muslim states. It was a blow to which the Muslim civilization would never fully recover, but in the shadow of this devastation, life and civilization would go on, and a new center of power to the west in Cairo would emerge. For better and for worse, this was the new reality brought on by the storm of the Mongol invasion, which is our subject today. So stay tuned. to this episode of the Golden Age of Islam. And today we're going to talk about a subject that we've been alluding to from the very beginning, the great dark cloud that we've been talking about that will sweep in to bring this golden age to an end. Yeah, today we're actually going to talk about the Mongol invasions. Now, it's typical to see this as just one steamroller of invasion that starts really out of the middle of nowhere from Mongolia and sweeps over most of the world, crushing everything in its path, and in that path happens to be most of the Muslim empire, as well as a lot of other civilizations. And while this is probably a pretty accurate statement from a, a 10,000-foot point of view, sort of a grand overview. Uh, when we look down at the closer level, uh, there are some actual ups and downs. There are some points where things go against the Mongols, where it looks like maybe this disaster won't happen. Now, we could argue if ultimately any of the actions uh, of the, the Muslim powers could have stopped this, this steamroller, and that's one of those hypothetical questions. But uh, the reality is there are a lot of decisions and a lot of failures on the part of the leadership in the Muslim world that lead to this. And there's a reason why the Mongol invasion doesn't sweep through the entire Muslim world and crush all the way to Mongolia. While, uh, why does a strong dynasty emerge in Egypt that stands its ground? So that's what we want to look at today. So let's first just set a little bit of the background for this situation. When the Mongols finally do come in contact with the, the world we've been talking about, what is it that they find? Well, for the last few episodes, we've been talking a lot about the situation in Egypt, Palestine, and Syria, what we call the Levant. But big things have been happening to the east at the same time. Now, when we last mentioned the Abbasid Caliphate, it was under the domination of the Seljuk Turks, who, amongst other things, conquered most of Turkey, and that's what set the Crusades in motion. Uh, but what's about to come is going to make the Crusades look small by comparison, which is, you know, quite a, quite a feat, to say the least. But anyway, things were falling apart for the Seljuks as well. You know, we've mentioned the fact that their, their dynasty was a very loose confederation. I mean, they're essentially uh, tribes coming from the Central Asian steppes, which is where all these peoples are coming from. This is where the Mongols are going to come from. And the ability of any one Seljuk sultan to kind of hold things together is sort of an anomaly. That's sort of the the exception to the rule. And so it happens during this time that their dynasty fractures into a lot of separate states. Okay, now most of the ones in the east were conquering Iraq and Persia are, are basically going to fall and be replaced by other powers. The one that stays, the one Seljuk state that remains, maybe somewhat ironically, is the Seljuk uh, Sultanate of Rum, and Rum is, 
is a basically a corruption of the word Rome, which is what the Muslims considered the Byzantine Empire to be. So basically, this is the Sultanate that's controlling half of Turkey. So oddly enough, this is the last one, and this is the furthest one to the west. This is the one that touches off the Crusades that they're trying to stop, but it's pretty much the only one left after the others sort of fizzle out. Well, the western part has become pretty much independent. Remember Salahadin and his Ayyubid Sultanate, they've taken over everything basically from Syria to Egypt. Now in the far eastern part of the empire, a Chinese dynasty uh, has defeated the Seljuks and taken back much of Central Asia from them. And this is where the Muslim world starts to blend into the Chinese world, and so they've lost a lot of territory over there. Now, meanwhile, throughout the late 11th and 12th centuries, the uh, Khwarezm Turks, who were originally Mamluks, in the service of the Seljuks, have become independent, as we've seen Mamluks tend to do. As I've said over and over again, pretty much anybody that you outsource your military to, uh, get ready for them to take over, and they do. And so we have the, the Khwarezmites from this area of Khwarezm, which is in uh, northern Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Central Asia today. Uh, they've basically formed their own sultanate in that area, stretches up to Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan in, in modern-day uh, countries. And so in the year 1194, they decisively defeat the last Suljic sultan, who was Turgil III, and that's really the end of the great Seljuk Empire. The only, only the state in Turkey remains, and so now we have these Khwarezm Turks uh, essentially independent. Well, they're going to be very important, uh, sort of unintentionally to some extent, in the story that unfolds. Okay, so we have to bear in mind, of course, that all of these folks we've been talking about are technically servants of the Abbasid Caliph. And so it gets confusing. I mean, if you read the histories, you hear about all these empires, and we're sort of used to, okay, territory is controlled by one empire at a time. So we can hear about the Khwarezm dynasty at the same time as the Seljuk dynasty at the same time as the Abbasid Caliphate. And you look at maps, and they're all controlling much of the same territory. And this is why they're, they're kind of uh, nested within each other. So the Khwarazm, uh, who were basically running things in their part of the world, for much of the time they are supposedly vassals of the Seljuks who are supposedly working for the Abbasids. But um, we know who really calls the shots there. So this does get kind of confusing. But by 1194 they have broken free, basically. Okay, so oddly enough, with this sort of confused situation and when the, with the Seljuks sort of out of the way, this is an opportunity for the Abbasid Caliph to reassert himself. Now, we've been saying they've been treated like figureheads, and they have, but that doesn't mean they want to be figureheads. Uh, I mean, they remember the glory days of Harun al-Rashid and al-Ma'mun. And so you have a, a caliph, in this case, uh, the one who's usually known as the last real Abbasid caliph. His name is Anasr. And he sees this opportunity, the weakness of the Seljuks, the confusion, the fighting among these various Mamluks. This is a chance for him to assert his power. And in fact, uh, Anasar is not completely innocent in the fact that they have been weakened. He's been out making deals, he's been inciting rebellions, trying to uh, particularly get rid of the Seljuks. They've been sort of the dominant power, you know, basically making a puppet of, of him. And so he's been, uh, for one thing, like uh, inciting the Khawarzim to fight against the Seljuks. And, and this is the reality. The only power a caliph has, I mean, whatever your title, you may be the supreme caliph, you may be a general, you may be a vizier, but pretty much the only power you have is the ability to build coalitions, to build relationships, to make deals, to play people off against one another. I mean, it's kind of like playing a, you know, a board game of diplomacy or something. And Anasser does a, a pretty good job of this. And so uh, he wants to be a real Abbasid Caliph, and um, he, he does. I mean, for a while, I mean, he's definitely running things in Baghdad, and he wants to extend that. 
And so later on, as part of these manipulations, he's going to try to manipulate a guy named Genghis Khan and use him against his rivals. Uh, the result is um, sort of infamous in history, but it, it takes us a while to get there. Okay. So anyway, by 1194, this is the year we're talking about here, and just for... Uh, some context, because we've been talking about different parts of the empire. Um, this is the year after Salahadin dies. Okay, so the Ayyubid dynasty is now passing, actually passes to his brother and then his descendants, and we talked about them. Okay, by this time, Anasar is in control of most of Iraq. He's definitely in control of Baghdad. Okay, so we're talking about a, a caliph here who's really running things. Now, even more impressive is he rules for 45 years, which is, I mean, legendary for a, for a caliph. And this leads to a peace uh, and a period of prosperity for Baghdad. I mean, we've been talking about wars on top of each other, and there are a lot of wars, but when we look at a specific area over a specific time, you know, for this period where he rules, it's a pretty good time uh, to be in Baghdad. And so he invests heavily in the arts, in the sciences, okay? Um, and so he's to such an extent that even the Ayyubids and the Khwarzim acknowledge him as their supreme leader. Now, of course, he doesn't really have any control of them, but they maintain good relations, you know, they pat him on the back, say, yeah, you're the boss, you're, I mean, you're the caliph. And so, I mean, compared to what we've been talking about for the caliphs uh, before this, this is like a, you know, a mini sort of golden age. Okay, so uh, now we've seen from our previous episode that the relations between the Abbasids and the Ubids are pretty good. Remember, Salah Hadin and his Ayyubids, what they're doing is reinforcing, really reestablishing Sunni control in, in their area, in Syria and especially in Egypt after the, the Fatimid Caliphate. And so this suits very well with the, the Caliph, who is I mean, technically the, the, head, the head figure in Sunni Islam. But the problem is in the east. Okay, so what happens here? Now, it's sort of a, a um, convoluted and complicated process how we get from this sort of little golden age of, of peace with a caliph, uh, you know, ruling over this golden age to the horrible destruction of Baghdad, which is, I mean, it's only going to be about 50 years after this that it happens. So how do we get there? Well... Uh, we've talked about the Khwarzim and how they've become pretty much independent. So the leader of the Khwarzim, beginning in the year 1200, is a fellow named Allah Adin Muhammad II. And that Allah Adin is actually it's the same name that Aladdin, the uh, fictional Aladdin, has. Okay, Allah Adin Muhammad II, and he's typically known as Shah. Muhammad, okay, because he's taken that term Shah. Now, if you remember, you know, Shah is Persian for king, okay? So, I mean, he didn't take that title just for nothing. I mean, he he thinks he's um, hot stuff, that he's the boss. Now, Shah Muhammad is one of those people who is remembered in history as kind of the chump who messes everything up. And so, everything we, we read about this guy Everything he does, there's always this ironic undertone of how, you know, what he's going to do is going to end up in a huge disaster. Uh, it's kind of like, to make a very bizarre example, if you've seen the Planet of the Apes movies, the recent ones, the reboot, um, the guy who basically causes the destruction of the human race and the, the rise of the apes is a doctor who's trying to cure Alzheimer's disease, right? A wonderful thing. Now, the, the way the order that the, the films go in, uh, by the time we see him doing this and working with his, you know, pet, pet ape to cure the disease, we already know what's going to happen. So there's, you're, you're watching him trying to find this cure for this terrible disease, and he thinks he's doing something great for humanity, and, and we know what the end result is going to be. Well, that's kind of like everything we read about Shah Muhammad. When you read about it today... I mean, this is basically the guy who gets credit for uh, bringing in Genghis Khan and destroying, you know, 
half the world. Uh, now, of course, at the time, he didn't know he was doing that. And when we look at him honestly, objectively, he's not really much worse than any of the other leaders we've seen at this time. But he's just one of these guys who's going to be, um, you know, his name is going to be uh, go down in history, like, you know, Typhoid Mary or, uh, you know, Mrs. Brown, who's supposedly had the cow that started the Chicago fire, and that whole story's probably a legend. But if you are Mrs. Brown, and, you know, it's pretty uh, pretty bad that that's what you remembered. Anyway, in truth, Shah Muhammad does seem to be a very egotistical, power-hungry guy. Remember, he's calling himself the Shah again. But, you know, I mean, given what's going on in this situation, I mean, it's not unusual for him to think he's a big shot and, you know, he's really gonna, uh, you know, establish a nice little empire for himself. Okay, so what actually happens? So, so uh, Shah Muhammad, who is part of this growing Khwarezm empire, you know, is thrown off the Seljuks, they're now independent, and he's captured a bunch of important cities in Central Asia. So remember, when we're talking about Central Asia, it's mostly harsh steppe and desert. And so the cities are very important. They're like oases, or more practically, they're like stations in this harsh terrain, you know, stations for the commerce to travel. This is where the Silk Road goes through. So capturing the cities is, is hugely important in this world, I mean, this part of the world. And so he has captured some of the most famous cities of Central Asia, legendary places like Samarkand, Bukhara, Tashkent, Okay, and so at this point, he is feels so powerful that he demands equality with the caliph, who is now his big rival and enemy at the time. Okay, and and so he wants the the caliph to acknowledge him as equal partner. Now remember, of course, the, the caliph does not control this area, but everybody's playing this game of saying, you know, the caliph is the boss, right? He's the one the Khalif is the successor to the Prophet Muhammad. They're all at least acknowledging him in name. Well, Shah Muhammad is, I mean, he's such a big shot. No, you have to acknowledge that I am equal to you, which, of course, the Khalif is not going to do. And again, this is one of those dramatic ironies. When we read it, you know, we laugh because we know what's about to happen to both of these guys. I mean, they're, they're both going to end up controlling nothing. But to him, he, he wants to be um, acknowledged as equal in power to the caliph. Okay? All right. So what we also do know is that most of the population of that area didn't like him. Uh, and this is because he created a lot of destruction in his conquests. And this is largely forgotten because compared to what's coming, I mean, it's, it's nothing. I mean, he does sort of... Uh, cause a lot of destruction in these cities, he kills a lot of people, but compared to what the Mongols are going to do, this is like small time. And he just basically seems to have been a real jerk to people. Okay, so he was not subtle about this. Remember, he wants to be acknowledged as the Shah, the supreme ruler, so he's not trying to win friends and uh, influence people. But the big thing this does is he expands his Khwarezm empire right up till it hits the border of the new and rapidly expanding Mongol state. Now, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we see the Mongols as this steamroller, right, that is going to crush everything from China all the way to Europe uh, without stopping. And, I mean, when you're looking in a macro perspective, um, that's accurate. But, of course, they don't know that. Uh, he just sees himself as bordering on this new group of nomads. And when you compare them from, you know, that time and place, okay, you've got the Mongols on this side. I mean, who, who are these people? On the other side, we've got the Abbasid Caliphate, at one time the greatest empire in the world. So who, who do you think is the, the biggest challenger to you? That's at least what he's going to think. Now, there is a lot of debate among historians, among 
whether Genghis Khan would have invaded the Muslim world anyway if Shah Muhammad had not messed everything up royally. Uh, and it's, it's very hard to determine. Uh, Mongol history is one of the trickiest um, areas of history to understand because uh, a lot of people who write about it have this fascination, almost infatuation with the Mongols and their military conquest, and so uh, there's all sorts of justification and rationalization. But anyway, we'll never know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that Shah Muhammad does get the distinction in history of being blamed for the whole thing. Okay, so, I mean, why is this even a controversy? Well, at the time, the Mongols were pretty well occupied conquering China, which happened right before this. And I mean, of course, China is a huge, important empire. And so they are nomadic horsemen, as we know. They're famous for that. They do very well in open battle on the steppes. Okay, you don't want to fight them in a cavalry battle. Um, but assaulting cities is a different whole different ball game and so it takes them a lot of time and they suffer a lot of casualties uh, and so I mean China is a very urbanized place and so they're very slowly going through it now what happens though they are quick learners and so they learn about siege warfare and so by the time they get to the Muslim Empire they're gonna bring with them a lot of Chinese engineers they bring gunpowder explosives catapults all sorts of siege machineries um, and as you can imagine it wasn't like they nicely asked these engineers please come with us um, I mean, they pretty much had no choice. So they're going to learn a lot from this, but the conquest of China is taking up a lot of their time. Meanwhile, they have very active trade relations with the Khwarezm. I mean, this is the Silk Road, okay? And so many historians say that Genghis Khan had no intention of attacking Khwarezm. I mean, that's definitely what he says. I mean, he talks about how important the trade relations are. He tries to make deals, try to make treaties with them. Um, and so, I mean, on, on paper, officially, that's true. And historians also point the fact that the Khalif, Anasir, who, again, is trying to, trying to compete with Shah Muhammad here, uh, tries to make a deal with Genghis Khan. Hey, you, you attack them from the east, I'll attack them from the west. Again, they don't know who the, I mean, they've been manipulating and buying off nomadic tribes for centuries. Oh, here's another one. We hear these Mongols are pretty tough. I mean, they have no idea uh, what this is going to turn into. And so he tries to um, work this out. I mean, this is probably uh, the best idea since the Byzantine emperor decided to uh, invite the crusaders in. Okay, but it's actually Genghis Khan who refuses the deal. Okay, he doesn't want to in invade Khwarezm. So instead, the, the Mongols force a treaty upon uh, Khwarezm, uh, I mean, which is very favorable to them. I mean, it's a pretty one-sided treaty, but uh, I mean, there are indications that things would have continued like this for a while. So, how does this turn into an invasion? Well. Shah Muhammad, again, the guy who gets blamed for everything, uh, he actually keeps the treaty with the Mongols. I mean, he's pretty strict on this. He seems to realize it's a good deal for him. He wants to fight with the, the Khalif. He's not interested in conquering Mongol territory. Uh, and so he seems to be um, pretty, pretty good at this, like he doesn't want to fight. But remember, he has really loose control of these cities that he's taken over. They don't, I mean, he doesn't have total control over him. So it is the governor of the city of Utrar, which is no longer in existence. Um, it's in what is today Kazakhstan, and it was on the Silk Road. I mean, it will, it will go out of existence pretty quick here, actually. So this governor, who doesn't want to play along with this, he attacks a Mongol trade caravan. Okay, now that's probably not a good idea. Um, you know, if, if you were sent back in time, you probably would not attack one of Genghis Khan's caravans. But again, they don't, they don't know who this guy is. I mean, he's some, some dude from out in the desert. Well, 
This does not lead to an invasion. Actually, Genghis Khan demands the return of the prisoners. Now, what happens here is Shah Muhammad, who had nothing to do with this uh, and didn't want to do this kind of thing, he's put in between his guy and the Mongols. And, of course, what do you do? You stand behind your guy. Right? You, you need to appear tough. You don't want to be knuckling down to a foreigner. Now, this, by the way, this scenario has been played out countless times in history before and, and is going on right now in the present. I mean, this is the easiest way to start a war between two people who don't want to have a war, and it, it works like a charm. What you have is two sides who are living in peace, who want to live in peace. They have a peace agreement. Uh, but you got some hardliner, some hothead on either side who doesn't like that idea and so makes an act of total blatant aggression. And what always happens is the people on his side, and it's not just the leaders but public opinion, they stand with their flesh and blood even when they're totally wrong. And then, of course, the other side demands uh, compensation and this thing escalates into... Uh, conflict. I mean, this is what has happened to every single agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians every time. You have the leaders, you have a majority of the population on both sides who want to make peace, who have a peace agreement, and it takes one bomber or one crazy guy going into a mosque with a machine gun, and what happens is when that person does an act of blatant terrorism, People line up behind their guy, even if he's totally wrong. I mean, in, in, I mean, this is a natural thing. We shouldn't just blame people in other cultures. It's hard to believe that even after the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, there were billboards of support for Lieutenant Cali. We have to stand behind Lieutenant Cali, who was a, a flat-out war criminal. Okay, and so th this is what happens. I mean, and, and by the way, just this is a total diversion here, but just to show you how powerful this is, I mean, this is how World War I gets started, right? We all know that a Serbian assassin killed uh, Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austrian throne. How did this start a war between Germany and England? Okay, and people wonder about this. And, you know, the fact is that the Serbian government was actively trying to stop these terrorists. They were working with the Austrian officials to try and catch them before they did it. And, and in fact, the reason the radicals killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand, because he was going to give, he was a liberal, he was going to give more autonomy to the Serbs and probably bring peace, and the radicals didn't like that. And, you know, by the way, if you know the story, it was just pure luck that they were actually able to kill him. It was a total accident. But once it happened, right, what happens? The Serbs, who were trying to stop it, stand by the Serb guy, even though he's a He's a terrorist. I mean, today he has a statue uh, over there. The Austrians demand revenge, and boom, this whole thing kicks into World War One, and you have millions of people from, you know, villages in England and France dying for something that they knew nothing about. But anyway, this is what's going to happen here, exactly like that scenario. Shah Muhammad, who, I mean, would consciously trying to avoid a fight with the Mongols, but one of his guys, a hothead who he doesn't get along with anyway, does a blatant aggression against the Mongols. Genghis Khan is trying to send ambassadors. He's trying to negotiate this thing. You know, I mean, he wants to, let's make a deal, okay? Well, what's this guy got to do? He's got to, I mean, he's got to show strength. He's got to show that he stands you know, the Khwarizm leader stands with Khwarizm, not these Mongol foreigners. So, Genghis Khan sends ambassadors. Shah Muhammad has them killed. Okay, now you would think this would be a pretty suicidal thing to do. You know, cut off the heads of Genghis Khan's ambassadors and send them back to him. Okay, not a smart idea. But this doesn't even start the invasion. Genghis Khan sends another delegation, and in this case, he includes one Muslim amongst the delegation to try and negotiate with them. Now, I mean, he's not exactly the most peaceful guy. I mean, he's kind of the opposite of that, but I mean, Genghis Khan's dealing with China. That's his issue. He 
doesn't want to fight with some country that he's got good relations with. Well, Shah Muhammad, again, trying to show his people that he stands by um, his folks, he shaves the head of the two Mongols, and he beheads the Muslim and sends them the head back to uh, Genghis. Well, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, even, even a guy like Genghis Khan has limits to his patience, and once you get him going, it's going to lead to one of the bloodiest conquest in history that even today is still uh, notorious. And, you know, this is kind of the thing that, you know, the Mongols are tied up. They've got their armies tied up in China, so that's why they don't want to bother to come to Khwarezm. But if you push them so far, they say, okay, well, we got no choice. We have to send an army out there. They didn't want to do it. Now you've just messed with their grand strategy. Uh, once that army gets there and gets started, they're not going to stop. Okay, so anyway, uh, today Shah Muhammad is remembered as the guy who started off the Mongol slaughter, who essentially kicked Genghis Khan in the groin and you know got this thing started. But you have to remember that's not the way it started out. Okay, I mean, it, it actually started out the same way that, that a lot of these conflicts start with you know, one hothead kicking things off. Okay, now, just my personal opinion here, which no one has asked for, uh, but I find it hard to believe that the peace between the Mongol Empire and the Islamic states would have lasted for very long. I mean, I have a very hard time imagining them existing next to each other for the next century or so. I think, yeah, Genghis Khan wanted to finish off China first, but once that was done, I, I really don't think you were going to keep him out of the, the Muslim states. But again, we'll never know. Okay. So anyway, I don't want to go into a lot of detail about the conquest of Khwarezm. Uh, there's been a lot written about this. If you read any book on the Mongols, I mean, it's done in great detail. And like I say, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are... Genghis Khan aficionados and admirers of the Mongols um, who otherwise don't have any real interest in Central Asia or Islamic history, but they, they love the Mongols. And, you know, those books just revel in the slaughter of Bukhara and Merv and Samarkand and other cities. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to indulge all the, all the bloody details. But suffice to say that the Mongols up to this point, you now they, they had some excesses. They, they'd done some pretty bad things. But up to this point in their history, they were not really renowned for um, wholesale slaughter. You know, they had been consolidating Central Asia, basically bringing all the nomadic, all the Mongol peoples, under their command. And that had been more of your typical, you know, combination of battles and negotiations and so forth. It's really with the conquest of Khwarezm and then Persia that follows that the reputation for outright genocide is going to come in. Uh, and the, the local Persian historian Juvaini said, quote, even though there be generation and increase until the resurrection, the population will not attain a tenth part of what it was before, end quote. And so this is his description of the conquest. Now, it turns out he was not correct. But what he's saying, that even to the end of time, if these people, the survivors, just multiplied as fast as they could, uh, till, till the end of time, they would never recover even a tenth of what the population was before they were there. It's not true, but that gives you an idea of how huge the slaughter was. Uh, in Iran today, uh, the red flowers of the poppies, which grow throughout the country, those are said to be the blood of the martyrs of the Mongols. Now, when you consider that a lot of wars have been fought in that area, and there's been a lot of bloodshed and repression, it's something that what they remember is a conquest from 800 years ago. Okay, so anyway, on the Muslim side of this, we find that they were very ill-prepared for this kind of attack. 
Shah Muhammad's grip on power was very weak. Yeah, I mean, he liked to talk a lot, liked to brag a lot, but um, he, you know, most of the people, as I said, hated him, and a lot of them preferred the Mongols, or at least they thought so initially before they got there. Okay. And he also made a decision to spread out his army over the cities. This is because he had fairly weak grasp of the, the leaders of these cities. He was trying to keep them in control. So instead of consolidating his army in one place as a mobile force, which would not have made any sense until the Mongol invasion, that would not have made, a, made sense as a defensive strategy, uh, he, he kept his army spread out garrisoning the cities basically to try and keep control on the folks who were you know, supposedly acknowledging him as overlord. The effect, though, this meant that the Mongols could take out the cities one at a time. Okay. Now, what I will say about the Mongol army here, though, is that, first of all, they were able to cross some terrain that no one thought they could. Uh, there were mountain ranges that were considered to be barriers to movement, and so they ended up popping up in places that were assumed they could never get to. And also because they're mobile cavalry, and they could live off the land. Now, by living off the land, I'm, I'm not saying necessarily they're picking roots and berries, meaning they could you know, slaughter a, a, a city and take all its food uh, and livestock. But because they could do that, and they had very capable generals who were able to uh, work independently, uh, people who became famous, like Subatai and Chebinoyan and Ogatai, who were, you know, very good operating on their own, they were able to send these fast-moving cavalry forces in several directions at once. At one point, they have five different armies in Khwarezm, all moving separately but coming together at key points and then going off in different directions. Now, that's in addition to what they've got fighting in China at the same time. And so, I mean, th this is just a kind of mobile... Uh, mobile force that, that no one has seen up to this point. Now this raises the question about the size of the competing forces. And unfortunately, we will probably never have any realistic idea about this. The figures out there are so wildly inflated that even today's best historians differ by orders of magnitude. Uh, you will find... Um, citations by very reputable historians that have the Mongol forces anywhere between 70,000 to 700,000. Okay, there are estimates that go over a million. But then there are historians who think they only had like 20,000 soldiers at specific battles, which would have been, you know, nothing unusual to what the, the Muslims were used to facing. And so we'll just never know the, the truth. Um, I think the reality, though, is that the Mongol armies were, were able to move and consolidate so fast, it, you know, so unexpectedly that it seemed like there were several hundred thousand of them, I mean, given their ability to, to do that. And so the comparisons between the Mongols and the German Blitzkrieg are natural, and people make them all the time. Uh, they go well beyond the battlefield. I mean, a lot of the same people who are Mongol aficionados or big aficionados of the German blitzkrieg and such. And from a strictly military point of view, you, you, we have to admire what they're able to do. However, um, you certainly can't separate that from the rest of the history. But anyway, the bottom line here is that this is, this is a, a new ball game. This is not what anyone is used to fighting in the Muslim world. So the people who will eventually defeat them, spoiler alert here, but you probably already know this, the, the Mamluks who eventually de defeat them basically adopt the same tactics of the Mongols, and they make better use of the terrain. They know the terrain better. Okay, anyway, uh, Shah Muhammad's uh, sterling reputation is also partially due to the fact that instead of fighting and dying, um, he flees. Uh, and actually... Genghis Khan ends up chasing him all over the place. Uh, and so he's, I mean, he's really running. He eventually takes refuge on an island in the Caspian Sea where you figure the Mongols can't get to him, and he actually dies of natural causes out there. Okay, now again, he's not a great guy. 
but when you see the very creative and sadistic ways that the Mongols kill the leaders that they catch, uh, you could see why you wouldn't want to get caught. Like, I mean, for example, being pulled apart by four horses going in opposite directions, that was one of the, the quicker ways of, of dying amongst the things that they did. So, uh, basically, he's one of the few that dies of natural causes. After the infamous destruction of Khwarezm, uh, the Islamic states get a break for a while, and it's due to outside factors. Uh, first thing is Genghis Khan dies in the year 1227, and this is always a big issue. Uh, and this is one thing that saves a lot of peoples from destruction, is that once the Khan dies, uh, basically, all the leaders and, and most of the armies have to go back to Mongolia and decide the uh, succession and who's going to take over. And this happens several times. And so uh, what he does, though, before he dies, Genghis Khan divides his empire into four khanets, meaning you know, four, four khans leading four separate uh, areas. And he divides it among his sons. Okay, uh, and so like China is one of these, what becomes the golden horde in, in Russia becomes one of these. And what's known as the Ilkhanate, which is basically uh, the former Khwarezm, Central Asia, this area that was conquered um, from the Muslim states. Uh, this is one of the four, the Ilkhanate. And um, this is going to be the one that will play the role in the, the further destruction of the Muslim world. But in any case, it's uh, Genghis Khan's son, Ogatai. He becomes the Great Khan. So the Great Khan is technically over all the four other Khans. Okay, well, Ogatai might have left Persia alone because he was basically occupied with the conquest of China and then Korea, um, but Shah Muhammad's son, uh, you know, keeping up the, uh, the old uh, family reputation here, uh, he had, his name is Jalaluddin, by the way, uh, he had fled into India. And so he decides this would be a great time to revive the Khwarezm dynasty and drive out the Mongols. And of course, um, We've seen what, what happens there. You're sort of, you know, kicking a sleeping tiger or something, and it's going to have the same great result. But, I mean, in fairness, a little bit of fairness to these guys, uh, he did actually win several significant battles against the Mongols. Okay, and uh, for a while he does drive the Mongols out of, out of Khwarezm, and he has sort of reestablished power. But, you know... You're talking about fighting against an empire that controls much of Asia at this time, so it's kind of like kicking a very large hornet's nest. So in, in this case, Ogatai, who again, he's the supreme Khan over the whole thing, uh, he decides this is, this is unacceptable, and so while he wasn't really focused on Persia before, he decides to send the army to go conquer the rest of Persia and put an end to this, and they succeed in doing this in the year 1230. Uh, they take back Khwarezm, they defeat Jala'ad-Din, uh, and the rest of Persia, the southern part of Persia, wisely decides to submit to the Mongols without a fight. And so now they've taken over all of Persia. Now here, things take a strange turn because from this point, instead of going you know, through Persia into Iraq, into Syria, into the rest of the Muslim world, the Mongol army takes a, takes a turn around the Caspian Sea into Russia and eventually into Eastern Europe. And, and when you look on a map, that's not as unusual as it sounds. But it's believed the reason for this is that the Mongols found the great pasture lands of southern Russia, 
the Ukraine, Eastern Europe. I mean, when we're talking, when you think of that area, the breadbasket, and they saw this would be a great area for them. Remember, they are, they're largely nomadic, and so they see these pasture lands, and this looks awesome to them. It looks better than the, the deserts and steppes of Persia, the Muslim Empire. So the Muslim world gets about a 20-year break before uh, the Mongols basically turn back to them. Now, uh, as we've seen throughout history, if you think they're going to make effective use of that 20 years, well, you probably haven't been paying attention. Um, they're they're just going to basically do some counterproductive and self-destructive stuff. Okay. Um, so anyway, by this point, uh, the Abbasid Caliph, Anasir, is gone, and the Caliph al-Mustasim, don't confuse him with Mu'tasim, who was the one who brought in Mamluk soldiers much, much earlier. Um, Mustasim has basically agreed to pay tribute to the Mongols, and, I mean, he's really doing everything except acknowledging them as overlords. Uh, he sends representatives to the crowning of the two great Khans. Ogatai dies. He's replaced by Monkey. Uh, and so, I mean, he sends ambassadors to them. I mean, he's really, really trying to keep on the good side of the Mongols. He realized this is probably not a good idea to incite them uh, to violence. But by the year 1251, okay, the new great Khan, this is Monkey, um, he wants to re, uh, reinvigorate the conquests. And so by this time, his brother, Hulagu, is the Khan of the Ilkhanat. And remember, that's the one that has basically taken over what was uh, Persia and Khwarezm. Okay, and I mean they had stopped, but uh, Hulagu, he's a grandson of um, Genghis Khan, as is Monkey, the the head uh, Khan, and so he wants to continue the conquest of the Middle East. Now, at the beginning, they were not necessarily intending to conquer the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, as long as they agreed to acknowledge the Mongols as overlords, pay tribute, uh, the plan was to let them remain, let the caliph remain in place, but basically Mongols would control the area. Uh, the ones they really wanted to get were the Ismaili Shia, in particular the assassins. Now remember those guys, they're back again, right? They've been popping up all this time, and they have this wonderful ability to stir up trouble for everyone. Uh, remember, the Sunnis are never able to get rid of them. Salahuddin is never able to get rid of them. Uh, the Crusaders are working with them. And, and so, I mean, given, given their, you know, great sense of, you know, of what to do, you know, their great judgment, the assassins decide, of course, they want to assassinate some Mongols as well. So they attempt to assassinate not one, but both of the great Khans, Ogatai and Monkey, and they fail in both cases. And so, you know, they're kind of able to get rid, get away with this, with the Muslim powers, you know, they're, they're sort of like this pest, but no one can quite stop them. But the Mongols are, you know, they're a different uh, ball game altogether. So you do that, and they are pretty much going to take you out, and they're, they're not going to stop until they get rid of you. So Hulagu is determined to get rid of the, the assassins once and for all. Uh, he captures their mountain fortress in northern Iran. He kills their leader, and it's believed that the rest of them pay their way out of this. But anyway, this is the end of the assassins. They are taken out by the Mongols. Okay, despite the 20-year gap, Baghdad is completely unprepared for the Mongol invasion, right? I mean, given everything they've seen, they've really done nothing um, to prepare themselves. And it's not like it's been complete peace. There have been annual raids by the Mongols in Khwarezm against northern Iraq. They've been driven back. Uh, they've basically been able to keep the Mongols out. These have been small-time raids. But the fact is everybody knows they're there, and they're, they're in continuing conflict with them. And, and so, I mean, to think that you're not going to have to deal with the Mongols again is pretty unrealistic, but 
Uh, we've seen leaders can be pretty unrealistic. So Hulagu now has been uh, ordered to continue the attack, and he has recruited what is believed to be the largest army in Mongol history. It's said that he conscripted one out of every ten men in the Mongol kingdom. And by the year 1255, he's marched into Iraq, and he's basically surrounded Baghdad, uh, which really doesn't have the capability to hold out. Okay, so in enters another one of these, you know, great wise folks um, who, who give some great advice here. So the Caliph al-Mustasim is being advised by his vizier and is told not to give in to the Mongol demands. It seems like he wants to cave in and give them what they want to avoid, you know, Baghdad being destroyed. Um, but the, the vizier, who is like the prime minister, tells them, don't do this, okay? This will make us just puppets of a pagan empire. Now, it's not known exactly why. Some historians think the vizier was a traitor, that he's actually working for the Mongols. I mean, that, that just seems like too logical an explanation. Some think he was just plain dumb. But he has convinced the caliph that Baghdad could not be captured, despite all the cities and fortresses that have been captured so far. And so, in the pattern of the times, right, the caliph, who, who really doesn't want to fight the Mongols at all, but he's told, hey, if you're going to... If you're going to stand up, you got to stand up. So he sends his really insulting and threatening letter to the Mongols, and that's you know pretty much going to be the doom of Baghdad. Um, he, he also believes that the entire Muslim world will rally to save Baghdad because this is the, the caliphate. So he sends out uh, calls to all the, all the Muslim states, Egypt, Syria, the Seljuks in Turkey, you know, all of them who technically acknowledge the caliph as their ruler. He says, okay, as your ruler, I order you to send all your forces here, and they pretty much ignore him. Okay, so the city of Baghdad actually falls in 12 days. Okay, so this is, this is not a, a really long battle. Uh, the destruction of Baghdad in the year 1258 is legendary. It's legendary in the history of the Mongols, but it's even more legendary in the, in the history of Islam you know, as, as the end, the end of the Golden Age. Uh, and it's really, I mean, it's, it's famous in all of human history just for the wanton destruction. There is, of course, a huge, huge slaughter of people of all ages and, and genders. Uh, basically, uh, actually, technicians and artisans, the Mongols liked them. And so if, if you had a skill, if you could do mosaics, if you were an architect, they shipped you to Mongolia. Uh, otherwise, you were going to be killed. And, I mean, they, they killed so many people, they basically depopulate Baghdad. Um, they destroy all the great buildings. That's why, I mean, none of them are, are, are left today, unlike, say, Cairo. And what is probably most famous is the destruction of the great libraries. Now, you've been hearing me say this, you know, every episode, um, that, you know, all these great works of great writers, we don't have any of them anymore. They're all lost. They're all lost because of the Mongols. Well, this is what happens. And so reports say that so many books were thrown into the Tigris River that you could walk across the river on the books. And it said that the, the river was black with ink for miles and miles. Now, of course, killing human beings is worse than destroying books. We know that. But this is the thing that really stands out because it seems so senseless and so bizarre. You know, I mean, the fact is, lots of armies kill lots of people. There have been lots of massacres, particularly at this time, you know, medieval history, ancient history. I mean, a lot of people slaughter their enemies, you know, as, as a defensive measure to prevent them from rising up or to scare people. But, I mean, the destroying of libraries seems odd because this these have all kinds of information that this is what made... Uh, the Muslim Empire powerful. You know, why destroy the books when you could use them or sell them or take the science and use it to your advantage? And so it's like showing a hate for knowledge and civilization and progress. 
and and this is what becomes I mean typical of the Mongols. This is this may be their most famous moment. So anyway, the Khalif, who you know, unlike Shah Muhammad, does not run away. He he stands. Uh, he is killed by being rolled up in a carpet and having Mongols ride their horses over them. Now this is just an, another one of the many really bizarre and seemingly cruel ways that the Mongols kill people. Um, other leaders, they have stuffed into boxes and suffocated. I mean, it's just, they, they, they do a lot of sick things like this. But, uh, ironically, oddly enough, it is said by some that the reason they did this is because they didn't want to spill royal blood on the ground. So you know, they rolled them up in this big carpet. Um, and so in, in some strange way, this is a way of honoring him. And I think the, the reality, I mean, and there's, there, as I said, there's a lot of apologists for the Mongols, you know, people who really admire them and, you know, want to sort of make excuses for a lot of the things they do. But one way that probably both of these things could be true. You know, we look at it as a sense of, you know, honoring this leader who stood up against them, and then this, you know, sick kind of torture to killing him, is that the, it could be that these hardcore, battle-hardy Mongols, you know, see what they see as an honorable death is something that shocks us. I mean, if we think in a sense of the, the samurai, for example, I mean, the, the most honorable death is, you know, to cut your own belly open. But that scene is being much more honorable than something, you know, cheap like, you know, having an execution or cut your head off. And so it could be that the fact that what, what we see as sadistic and cruel to them, seems like, well, you know, what a macho way to go, or something. Anyway, at least to the, to the Muslim inhabitants of Baghdad, this is just cruel and sick. Okay, so the result, though, is that Baghdad will never recover its greatness. Even, even today, in this 2019, it has not recovered uh, the greatness. The population will go way, way down, uh, and even when the great traveler Ibn Battuta visits the city a century later, uh, he's still looking at the ruins of, of what was once Baghdad. Uh, and of course, similar fates are going to await the cities of Syria, the great cities there. And so this, more than anything else, marks the move of the Muslim center to Cairo. So technically, um, Technically, the, the Abbasid uh, Khalif, the successor to the Caliphate, moves to Cairo. The Mamluks actually keep a completely figurehead uh, Abbasid Khalif in, in Cairo. So even, I mean, that is a symbol that the center of the Muslim world has moved to Cairo. Cairo will become the largest city in the, in the world. But at, at this point, from the 13th century on, at least through the late 20th century... Cairo becomes the cultural and political center of the Arab world. Now, in very recent years, in the 21st century, we could, we could argue that the center of the Muslim world has shifted to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, but that's a long, long time ahead. And so, I mean, this is, this is a definite, uh, definite shift, and part of that is the fact that the Mongols will never be able to conquer Egypt. And so, a lot of people use this event to mark the end of the Muslim Golden Age. Now that could be a little bit of a problem for the title of this show, because we intend to keep going, but uh, anyway, the reality is that some of the best Islamic art and scholarship is still going to come. Uh, but in, in the Mamluk period itself is sort of a, a golden age in itself. It's a different kind of golden age. But this is definitely the end of the Abbasid period. It's definitely the end of the Caliphate. Now, and it's really the end of the dominance of the Muslim world. You know, we've been talking about a Muslim empire as the most powerful state on earth uh, for several centuries now. And of course, yeah, it's been a bit of a stretch for the last few centuries. We've gone from a place where it's, I mean, the absolute 
dominant power on the world to, to the time when they could look at divide the world into the Muslim empire, Dar al-Islam, and then everything else, and that made sense. Well, for the last couple of centuries, maybe it's been more like, uh, okay, yeah, they're, they're still in first place by, you know, a half a game or something, you know, you know, just barely in half play. But definitely after the destruction of Baghdad, the, the dominance of the Muslim world is over. Uh, there's still going to be an impressive Mamluk state in Egypt, uh, but this is, this is really the, the end of that great empire. And so that is where we leave our story today in this sad note, sort of the twilight coming down on the caliphate, on the Abbasid Empire in Baghdad, and leaving us now with the Mamluk state. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about that, how this Mamluk state survives, how it thrives, and how it ushers in a new era. One could say a new golden age or a, a mini golden age. And that will be our subject in the future. So we leave you today with this. We hope to see you again in the future. Thank you so much for your kind attention. We'll see you again. Shukran Jazeelan. Wa ma salam.